Hello and welcome to the latest edition of China Inc. by Bamboo Works, where we discuss the latest business and financial news from China and what it all means. I'm Doug Young, Bamboo Works editor in chief, and I'm joined today by Renee Vangustine, one of our founding partners, who's also a longtime China watcher and former investment banker. Today we'll look at e-commerce giants Alibaba and JD.com, which have announced different plans to break up their companies to try and satisfy Beijing regulators. We'll also look at China's growing love affair with Saudi Arabia. We'll start with Alibaba and JD.com, which were the biggest corporate story coming from China last week. Alibaba kicked things off by announcing it would break itself up into six parts, each run separately, including separate listings. JD followed days later by announcing it would spin off and separately list its commercial and real estate businesses. Both companies have very wide-ranging businesses in other areas outside their core e-commerce, from media and takeout dining for Alibaba to healthcare and finance for JD.com. So, Renee, has big story.、Um, can you tell us a little bit、uh, more about what's driving this, and do you think that these moves are going to be enough to satisfy Beijing regulators? Well, if you listen to the companies, this has everything to do with increasing shareholder value. And while there may be some truth to that, especially because the stocks of those companies have been beaten down substantially over the last, let's say, two years because of regulatory activity, I suspect that、um, it has a lot to do with the regulators in China. Splitting into a number of companies and placing each and every company on the market is supposedly it's intended to be gives I think a greater level of control in terms of who eventually in the end are the shareholders of each and every one of those entities, where they are listed, and as a result of that, which regulators they come under. So, if you look at Alibaba, for instance, Alibaba is listed in Hong Kong, obviously, but it, its primary listing historically was in the U.S., and therefore somehow it falls under the supervision of、uh, U.S. regulators, in particularly the Securities and Exchange Commission. In addition to Hong Kong regulators for the shares that are listed in Hong Kong. Going away from U.S. regulators cannot happen unless Alibaba delists from the U.S. Whereas when you start looking at individual companies among these six, you, for instance,、uh, you know, think about the cloud business. Well, the cloud business could very well be listed in Hong Kong and not in the U.S. because it is particularly sensitive in terms of the data that it holds for certain entities in China. Or the regulators might say you have to list it in the Asia market. And there's a way there will be absolutely no, at least, significant foreign ownership.、Mm. So I think that、um, I think that a lot of that is is、uh, actually driven by regulatory considerations. So if it's regulators, my first instinct was that、uh, you know this is antitrust.、Uh, they're trying to prevent Alibaba and JD and and Tencent from you know getting too big and too powerful. But it sounds like you're saying. The regulation is more like just make each piece, you know, a, a bit clearer about who who it reports to and what it does, and you know, make it easier for shareholders. So it's not about antitrust、uh, breakups. Well, antitrust breakup would actually effectively 
not happen unless Alibaba became a minority shareholder and probably a very small minority shareholder in some of those subsidiaries. As long as Alibaba would retain control of each and every one of them, even if they IPO some of them um, and uh, they get 25, 30, 40% third-party shareholders, in my view, that doesn't do much in terms of breaking monopolies, uh, which is typically, obviously, the objective of antitrust regulation. So for antitrust to work, you really have to completely lose control over some of those entities. Well, I guess that could be a next step if, if they want to. I mean, it is possible. It could be, yeah, it could be a possibility somewhere down the road. Mm-hmm. It could also be that when you look at the, uh, the cloud business, once again, you know, the government would say, look, um, you know, we want this to eventually be in the hands of an SOE. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Ah. Uh, because of the sensitivity of the business. Right. We saw Alibaba and JD both do this like in the same week. Uh, what about some of the other big internet names like Tencent and, and Meituan? They also have pretty wide ranging business empires. Um, do you think we're going to mm. see something similar to this coming from some of those other companies? Well, um, at the first level, if you, if you simply look at it in terms of supervision by foreign regulators, you don't have the same problem with these two as you have with JD and Alibaba. Those two companies are only listed in Hong Kong. They're not listed in the US, so they don't come under the jurisdiction of US regulators, point number Mm. one. If the objective is indeed on the antitrust consideration, then presumably at some point in time, there is no reason why these two would not be somewhat forced by regulators to uh, break up and eventually lose control over some of their multi-businesses in those groups. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because, I mean, Tencent, I mean, the most obvious one would be the spin-off WeChat. I mean, that's like a huge business. It's not really related to their their core gaming business. Uh, You know, and they've got a few other things. They've got their their payments business, which Alipay has already spun off. You look at Meituan, they've got their shared bike business. They've got their restaurant ratings business. I mean, they've just... They're just in all sorts of different pies. Seems like it might make sense, but um, I guess it, you know it all comes down to what's the objective in doing this? Is it to unlock shareholder value? Is it regulatory? Is it antitrust? You know, or is it all of the above? Well, given what has happened in China on the regulatory front with respect to those particular sectors over the last two years. It's very hard to believe that this would all have to do exclusively with increasing shareholder value. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's probably a little bit of everything then. Uh, the oversight and too big and all that stuff. Okay, well, let's uh, move on. It's a, it's a big topic, but I'm, I'm sure we'll be able to come back to it later. Next, let's look at uh, China's growing love affair with Saudi Arabia. Maybe not all of us know, but the Saudis are big investors in China's energy industry already, and they kicked things up a notch last week with two major new announcements. The biggest of those is going to see their oil arms, Saudi Aramco, invest 24.6 billion yuan, or about 3.6 billion U.S. dollars, for 10% of a major oil refining project in Zhejiang. That came days after the two sides agreed to jointly fund a massive $10 billion refinery in northeastern Liaoning province. 
Now, China watchers will know that these two big investments come not long after President Xi Jinping visited Saudi Arabia in one of his first trips outside China since the pandemic. And then uh, a lot of people also know that China brokered a plan to restore Saudi diplomatic relations with its arch rival Iran after a seven-year break. So what's driving this sudden flurry of activity between these two countries? Well, um, you know, I think there's obviously some economic considerations, definitely. On the other hand, China has more recently done a lot of efforts, especially since the uh, reopening back in early December, to increase its presence in global foreign affairs, increasing foreign policy involvement as much as they could in as many places as they could. And part of that is obviously driven by this effort to build what they consider is a necessary counterweight to Western countries mm. in the affairs of the world. So definitely um, we have to believe that is, you know, one of the drivers here. The deal that they brokered between uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran is interesting. I mean, I really don't pay too much attention to that. I don't think it will ever amount to anything meaningful other than a good PR exercise for a while. <laughs> you know, Iran is not going to change their strides unless there is a radical change of leadership in Iran. And uh, therefore, it's very hard to see what common interest there may be between Saudi Arabia and Iran, other than maybe short-term economic or trade considerations. Beyond that, there's going to be any lasting effect mm -hmm. of that particular move. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, uh, that's how I look at it. Well, what about the whole uh, economic interdependence? I don't, I don't think this necessarily gets enough attention. I mean, there's a real shift happening in uh, certainly with the U.S., the U.S. has become much more energy independent, I guess, with all the, you know, the shale oil and, and then China's sort of moved in just the opposite direction. They seem to be buying more and more Saudi oil. I mean, is there a, a business angle? And then and then also at the same time, Saudi Arabia sort of seems to be evolving as a bulkhead for China's Belt and Road investment. It seems like there's an economic component to it, you know, just based on the way things have been sort of shifting economically in the last probably, you know, five, 10 years? Well, I think that China has demonstrated over time that it can be extremely opportunistic in the pursuit of its goals, whether it's to take a, maybe an even more important example, food sufficiency, but definitely energy efficiency uh, or sufficiency is a very important uh, issue for China until eventually the day where uh, renewable energy will take care of most of the needs in China. So it makes sense if you look at it that way for, you know, China to be involved more with the Middle East in terms of oil trade. After all, that's where a huge portion of the oil is produced in the world. The U.S. is actually not as fully independent as they once used to be, and part of it is obviously as a result of the policies of the current administration, which have done a lot to limit the ability of the oil and gas sector, in particular in the 
US to expand the production, whether it's upstream or even downstream in terms of uh, refined oil. So you look at all of that and um, it definitely makes sense for China to do something like this. Mm -hmm. Um, For the Saudis, you sell oil to China and then uh, you get paid and, and, you know, you use that to do investments, you know, in oil uh, facilities in China. You know, it's kind of a circular approach to, uh, uh, you know, trade cooperation that it makes sense to some extent. Let's not forget that, you know, if you go back historically 20 plus years, BP and I think Royal Dutch Shell equally had actually joint ventures with companies like Sanopec and PetroChina on the refining side of the business as well as on the distribution of the finished products. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, that's true. Huh? Those uh, those joint ventures all seem like uh, light years ago, but I guess uh, I guess they're probably mostly still operating. They're pretty big uh, ventures. Yeah, I'm still operating. Yeah. I guess I will stay tuned to see how that one develops. Uh, if they do, do any more in that part of the world, I'm sure sure they will. Okay, so uh, let's wrap things up there. Uh, before we sign off, I want to uh, ask all of our listeners if you like what you're hearing, if you can recommend us uh, to your friends on whatever platform you listen to us. Okay, thanks everybody for joining us this week. In our next program, we'll look at a major advance for the yuan in China's drive to make its currency a global alternative to the U.S. dollar. And we'll also look at a great made-in-China yarn involving a company that created a new class of shares for its stock to help its founder maintain his voting power after he lost most of his shares in a margin call. Hope to see you then. Goodbye for now. Thank you all. Thank you all.